Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'll be speaking today with Stan Cox and John Pfeffer. And you can learn more about both of them at their websites. And that is johnpfeffer.com, J-O-H-N-F-E-F-F-E-R.com. And Stan, you can learn more about at Land Institute, one word, landinstitute.org. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, and the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at provocative, new, helpful issues in politics, economic, environment, health, science, media, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. And podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. I was visiting the East Coast last week and uh, had a dinner with my wife and I and my brother, who's two years younger than I, my sister, who's actually... 12 or 14 years younger than I. And um, we talked about everything. And eventually the conversation turned to politics and the darkness uh, that we all see in terms of tribalism and polarization and the lack of real or necessary responsiveness to some of the critical challenges we face. And I, I list those, those challenges some of which I think rise to the level of existential. Um, uh, And I think most of them have grown out of the distortion of our economy and our politics or are unsolvable because of them. And here they are, inequality, climate change, an unhealthy relationship with the rest of nature, pandemics and public health, social and racial division and tribalism, crippled government and endangered democracy. My sisters finally said, well, what do you guys think? Are we going to be able to make it? Uh, do you think we're going to turn things around? And in answering her question, it sort of crystallized something I've been thinking kind of unformed for, for quite a while. I suspect that I've always operated under the notion that if we could get enough people to understand what was going on in terms of these big challenges, if we could move public opinion to a point where a majority or even large majorities began to favor the policies and actions that would produce well-being and that would respond effectively and fairly and justly to these challenges, that that would be our path to successfully confronting them. And I've been at this broadly for most of my adult life. I'll lay this out so Stan and John have a sense of where I'm coming from. I, I, of course, I'm, I'm from the boomer generation. I graduated college in 1969. So I demonstrated against the war during college. I I worked in alternative education during and after college. Um, In terms of my relationship to nature, I once spent six months at sea and I worked at an organic farm. Um, I, I was on the national staff of the McGovern campaign. I participated in and made a documentary at a Buckminster Fuller World Game uh, workshop. I took a detour to the entertainment industry for about 20 years, but really I even did that with the sense that it would do, it would be something I wanted to do and and would take, you know, to make use of my talents, but also that it would create a platform where my opinions and, and what I cared about would matter more. When I moved out of the entertainment industry, I took on these hour long conversations, which I've been doing since 1996. And some of my very first guests were Ralph Nader, Lester Brown, Herman Daly, Dana Meadows. Um, So this is something that's been a key part of my life. And I'm thinking, John, Stan, you even more so. You didn't take that detour into the entertainment industry. Although, John, (laughs) you have uh, written and performed in a number of plays and one-man shows, which was fun to find out in your bio. Um, (laughs) But you guys have been at this work for most of your adult lives, trying to solve big problems and trying to move the country in the right direction. And we said we were going to talk, when I approached both of you, we are going to talk about the politics of climate and the politics of our relationship to the rest of nature. But let me put that in this larger context. 
of the relentless emergence of minority rule. So that moving the general public through your work, through my work, um, through articles, through research, through books, through, you know, all of that um, may not be enough. Um, that in fact, it's becoming less and less important and maybe less and less effective. So I wanna take a moment now just to talk about what some of the polls reveal. That's that first half of that, that once people come around to this, then we'll have done our work. Um, and then we'll begin the conversation in earnest with the two of you about specific issues, but all in this larger context of whether we actually are equipped to solve or even to deal effectively with the enormous challenges we face. Um, so I'll lay these polls and, and then I'll, I'll let people know a little bit more about both of you. Um, a new Ipsos poll um, illuminates a yawning gap between public opinion and science on perhaps the most important scientific question of our time. So they're saying there that 49% of Americans believe climate change is caused mostly by human actions. This is very recent. And um, it's actually gone down in the last couple of years. A sizable share of the nation has not been swayed. A respected climate change poll conducted by Yale and George Mason universities in December found 70% of Americans believe in global warming, but 16% said they did not. And a smaller share wasn't sure. The same poll reports 58% of Americans believe global warming is caused mostly by human activity. So nearly three out of five. One recent scholarly analysis of 3000 scientific studies on climate change found only four papers that voiced doubt about the human role in global warming. So that's science on that side. In a 2019 Pew survey, only 14% of conservative Republicans said they believe human activity contributes a great deal to climate change. 84% of liberal Democrats voiced that view. In the new Ipsos poll, 75% of Democrats say climate change is caused mostly by humans, 22% of Republicans. Of the 20 Congress members who received the most donations from oil and gas interests, 17 were Republicans. And polls show that now this people have experienced, whether it's wildfires or floods or wild temperature swings, heat, um, uh, you know, heat uh, stages of heat that, that are unprecedented. Um, so people are beginning to sense more that actually in their own lives, climate change is real. 72% um, of Texans acknowledged global warming in 2021 matching the national average. And we, I think, probably often think of Texas as an outlier in that. In hurricane-battered Florida, another, um, you know, per, per performance-oriented uh, uh, Republican state with a performance-oriented Republican governor, 73% of residents accept climate change. 80% um, of voters support federal funding for re more research into renewable energy. Uh, similar sh share support generating renewable energy on public land. Roughly 75% favor tax incentives for energy efficient vehicles, solar panels, green appliances. So you get, we're talking 60 in a Republican uh, demographic, 70, 75, 80. So the, the battle to kind of inform people and get over the climate denial has greatly been won. But as Michael Mann, um, climatologist, points out in his book, The New Climate War, the terrain has shifted uh, where the battle was to deny climate change. That has become kind of impossible because climate change asserts itself in people's lives. So now it becomes a lot of other um, smaller, more specific strategies. Um, you know, just culturally, the one of getting people to disagree of whether they should have a hybrid or an electric car, those kinds of things. Um, but but a lot of what we're going to talk about here is the political attacks on responses to climate that um, that arise once you realize that the public has won over to the fact that climate change exists and needs to be dealt with. OK, that's the premise here. Now, let me tell you, my two guests, Stan Cox, 
began his career in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He's now the Ecosphere Studies Research Fellow at the Land Institute. And we'll ask you what that means in a second, Stan. <laughs> um, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Nation, Salon. His books include The Green New Deal and Beyond, Losing Our Cool, Uncomfortable Truths About Air Condition, About Our Air Conditioned World, How the World Breaks, Life and Catastrophe's Path, and the Path to a Livable Future. John Pfeffer is the Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies and a senior associate at the Asia Institute in Seoul, Korea. He is a former associate editor of World Policy Journal. He's worked with the Americans Friends Service Committee on a range of issues. He's produced 11 plays, including seven one-man shows. His nonfiction books include The Pandemic Pivot, Aftershock, A Journey into Eastern Europe's Broken Dreams, and the latest, Right Across the World, The Global Networking of the Far Right and the Left Response. He's also the author of the dystopian trilogy of novels, Splinterlands, Crosslands, and Songlands. Welcome Stan Cox and John Pfeffer to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thanks and for having us on the show. We're recording this conversation Wednesday, June 7th. Now, I like listeners to get a feel for the people beyond the ideas and the work that we talk about. So before we jump into that, I want them to learn a little bit more about you. And although I've hit some highlights, the books you've written and that sort of thing, and maybe in the context of what I laid out in my introduction, let me start with you, uh, Stan, first, and then you, John. Tell us a bit about how you see your path to the work that you're doing today. And you can go way back, um, childhood experiences and inspirations, mentors, turning points, that sort of thing. Okay, so Stan <laughs> first and then John. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Terrence. Um, I, my uh, career up until a couple of years ago is uh, spent in uh, plant breeding, um, developing new um, varieties of uh, food crops, uh, like uh, wheat, uh, sorghum, and so forth. Um, and uh, since 2000, I was working here at the, the uh, Land Institute where we're working on developing perennial agriculture, uh, which uh, we don't have time to get into, but for all of these, the uh, uh, planetary boundaries, the uh, ecological crisis, um, uh, for doing something about that, we, um, agriculture does need to be uh, converted to uh, perennial uh, ecosystems. Um, but then as, um, we, as uh, we fail time and time again to do anything about uh, climate in this country and other uh, rich countries, um, it started to occur to me that you know, the research we're doing here is going to take a while. It's uh, kind of um, revolutionary in a way. And, and I thought, but even if we succeed wildly beyond our greatest successes and that 12 or that 15% of um, greenhouse gas emissions that are related to land use, including agriculture. Even if we solve that and we don't do anything about the 75% that is um, that starts out as the carbon in oil, gas, and coal, then all of our work will have been for naught. So um, since that time. But before that time, I was kind of writing books and so forth and in spare time dealing with this. But now uh, you're asking what the Ecosphere fellow does. I'm, uh, I'm working on, on uh, that, that problem now. And then specifically uh, in the past year and a half on uh, this very question of um, the dire political situation threatening our ability to do anything about the uh, climate emergency. And how do you, how do you folks at Land Institute um, define ecosphere? It's, um, it's an improvement on the word. We all know the biosphere is the, the living earth and every, you know, everything uh, on, on the earth, you know, down, down to bacteria. Uh, but um, Wes Jackson, the founder of the Institute, um, a number, 
quite a bit. And he didn't come up with the term himself, but he really pushes it saying that um, the, the soil and in the, the geologic formations that get weathered into um, being soil, the, the um, oceans, the iron balance in the oceans, all of those things really are uh, part of life too. And if we don't deal with um, everything living and not non-living, which uh, is the ecosphere. Um, an ecosystem isn't just the living things and nor is the, the whole earth. So, so it's everything that was in the biosphere, but, but the, the larger context in which the biosphere exists. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Bye. Thank you, Stan. John, your path. So my background is in working on international relations, and I've spent a lot of time uh, working in the Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union sphere back when I was uh, in my 20s. I, you know, I was a Russian major, and then I lived in Poland and picked up Polish. So that was kind of my initial background, but then went off to uh, Asia to work with the American Friends Service Committee to focus on Korea, the two Koreas. Um, but coming back to the States, you know, I, I kind of developed a much larger portfolio, if you will, of international relations writ large. And in the last few years, had sponsored a number of conversations, first about the rise of the far right, and then about kind of the, the pandemic and the various kind of leverage points that have emerged as a result of the pandemic. And the consensus view from both of those kind of big conversations with hundreds of people was that progressives have an advantage over the far right and in some cases over the um, the mainstream to a certain extent by proposing effective um, alternatives for dealing with uh, the climate problem and you know the larger planetary crisis. So we're talking political advantage. You know we should be able to win. You know votes um, as a result of our climate policy and our, our environmental policy, especially against the far right, which has, frankly, no answers to these questions. Uh, and so as a result of that, we created something called Global Just Transition at the Institute for Policy Studies, which looks at global Green New Deals or Green New Deals in various parts of the world, and especially the blind spots, uh, the blind spots often being kind of the policies in the global south and uh, or the the lack of participation by the global south in these discussions about moving beyond fossil fuels and in part because the global south a has a still has a development agenda and b the global south has enormous resources and the question is are they going to be taking advantage of them or are they simply going to be shipping them off to the global north as part of a kind of new version of colonialism, a green colonialism, if you will. So that's kind of where I've I've landed after this trajectory through international relations. Yeah, no, it was interesting. Uh, Stan suggested, I, I reached out to Stan Cox after I read an article, which I'll talk about in, in, in a short time. Um, and I said, but I'd love to have a conversation with more than one person. And he suggested you. And then I looked and I saw foreign policy in focus. And I thought, this is interesting because see, this was going to be, this looked like a domestic climate conversation. Um, the <laughs> other thing I want to ask you about, John, is the plays <laughs> and the novels. Just talk a little bit about how that fits into your life, fits into your work, that sort of thing. Well, the novels are the easiest kind of thing to fit into this, this uh, discussion because the novels are basically about uh, the climate crisis 30, 35 years hence, and how uh, the world will deal with this. And the three novels are written from the perspective of th three members of a family, a father, a mother, and a daughter, each of whom are coming at this problem from a different direction and culminates in what I would like to think is, it, is an interesting and possibly hopeful um, vision of how we exit what many of us and obviously what you and your family were discussing around the dinner table seems to be a pretty dystopian presence, present and what promises to be a dystopian future as well. Uh, the plays are somewhat different in the sense that some of them are personal, some of them are address personal uh, history, and some of them address you know, Polish-Jewish relations or um, the question of memory uh, or the latest play, uh, which is about the life of Mayakovsky, the Soviet poet. 
Um, but they, they're all kind of explorations of um, personal stories on stage in a way to have a direct connection with an audience. Because, and Stan perhaps <laughs> would agree with me here, you write something, you don't necessarily have a connection with your the readers. People are reading them in their bathrooms, in their beds. They're not reading them in front yeah. of you. You don't watch them read your book. And, they, and you don't have an opportunity to answer their questions yeah. as they're reading them. But with a play, you're right there on stage and you're directly engaging an audience. And you can watch the audience as they are taking in your words, which is an extraordinary experience. And, and let me ask you, in terms of your work, did you come late to theater and novels or have the strains both been running throughout your adult life? Uh, the novels have always been there. I mean, I, I published something when I was in my 30s and early, early 30s. Um, the plays came much later. One, one might even argue that they came in my senescence. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I had no theater background, uh, didn't do any in college or thereafter, but it had in the back of my mind this idea that someday someone would ask me uh, to get up on stage and, and tell stories. And, and in fact, no one ever did. So I decided, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to take the initiative. And that's what I did about 15 years ago. Very good. I, I will say, by the way, um, that... I didn't have time to read any of the novels or the plays, but I read one of your recent articles, which is titled something like, what will the world look like in 2025? In which you, in a fictional dystopian account, briefly tell others what that brief piece had to say. Uh, well, if I remember correctly, because there are a number of pieces I wrote, it's somewhat this, close to each other. This is other. sort of the America's cultural revolution. Right. Oh, okay. That one. That, um, one. Well, that one was uh, imagining what would happen if uh, this kind of Trumpian attack on intellectuals um, and kind of the, the expert class were to continue unabated uh, and begin to resemble the attacks within China that took place between 65 and 75. Uh, against the the cultural and intellectual elite, uh, basically sending those folks out to the countryside. So I imagine what it would be like if we, cultural elite, intellectual elite experts, were sent to the countryside because we were determined to be, you know, out of touch with people and and woefully um, uh, inept, <laughs> whatever the criticism coming from the Trump camp. And so I imagine someone, you know, an expert, you know, on on uh, on a particular public policy issue, basically forced to work at a uh, fast food restaurant, um, along with everybody else uh, in in Washington, uh, kind of sent out into the hinterlands. Which it turns out is is an interesting exercise uh, because it gets people outside of Washington, and God knows people in Washington have <laughs> to get outside the Beltway in order <laughs> to understand the world. So this wasn't, you know, a, a dystopia in the sense of, you know, this is necessarily a bad thing because, in, and as a lot of people in China learned, you know, they learned a lot from the people. No, it, it was interesting that you at the end of it you sort of say, well, China came out of the Cultural Revolution in a very transformational uh, moves toward, I mean, that that really the China we see today is the China that emerges post-cultural revolution. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, so people, if, if you're interested, that one is out there. Okay, um, let's talk about the issue that led me to initiate this conversation. I read an article, as uh, it was Stan Cox's article, headlined MAGA legislators increasingly forced taxpayers to support fossil fuel industry. And it showed up in a number of different uh, progressive publications. Um, Stan, I'll throw it to you. Um, what are we talking about here? And I have a sense that to some people, this is going to be a revelation. Well, we're talking about um, what um, you, you both have um, alluded to um, earlier, that um, we have when when we have politicians and, and specifically in this case uh, uh, legislators or, or secretaries of state in the states who are shielded from public opinion and do not have to win a majority of um, votes statewide to hold their power 
And this that, is this is um, often often a result of gerrymandering. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah gerrymandering. Um, that um, the fact that uh, most people and a growing number of people are wanting to see uh, climate action, they don't have to take that into account. So if you take the 19 states with the highest per capita CO2 emissions, 15 of those states now have the governorship and both houses of the legislature under um, Republican control, and too many cases uh, veto-proof Republican. Well, it doesn't matter because the governor is uh, Republican. Right. But, um, uh, and it's in those states where these um, laws are getting passed. And, and they're doing this power grab, basically undermining um, democracy um, at three levels. The main focus of that article um, was their power grab um, within the state government to prohibit, they pass laws prohibiting government agencies from dealing with any um, companies that have policies not to invest in fossil fuel related industries or not to do business with fossil fuel related um, industries. So let, let me clarify this for, for listeners. So the government, as we know, government interaction with private companies is an important lever. And so we've seen right. you know, that, that could, because so many companies do depend or do rely at least for a portion of their balance sheet on how they interact with the government. And so what they're mm -hmm. saying is they're saying if you as a company, um, for instance, the way it's listed, uh, I'll, I'll read this right here. Kentucky, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Wyoming have laws aimed at punishing private companies that, quote, boycott or, quote, discriminate against what are considered ESG disfavored industries. And I'll let you talk about that in a second. It's particularly those involved in fossil fuel or firearm production. So if a company, in the words, in the, in the view of the state, um, discriminates or boycotts those industries, then the government cannot do business with them. That's right. And, and some of the biggest impact is... Um, with company like investment financial firms that um, invest the state pension funds. And, and so th those are huge amounts of money and these states are not letting the funds that follow that this ESG is uh, environment society governance there. It's basically what used to be called socially responsible investing. If the financial companies are doing that, then they don't get to handle the state uh, pension funds. Um, and so um, that that is the, the, the first way in which um, these legislatures are um, taking power away from uh, the people and in, in the process um, uh, hurting, uh, uh, hurting uh, any attempt at, at climate climate policy. The second one, which I think is uh, even more nefarious, is they are preempting local laws. And, and this started with, um, well, I don't know if it started, but the cl first climate-related thing with this was uh, in, uh, this was in Texas. Some communities were banning fracking in their, in their county or in their local area. Uh, and the uh, legislature and, and uh, Greg Abbott uh, uh, passed a law set prohibiting anti, these are all double negative things. They're prohibiting anti-fracking uh, local ordinances. Um, and then more recently, uh, they've barred uh, local governments from um, well, some local governments in, in the cities, and it's almost always the cities they're going after, uh, have um, prohibited new fossil gas hookups for houses, for the you know, gas stoves, water heaters, um, in new construction. They're trying to phase out. We've heard a lot lately about gas stoves and so forth. 
phase those out. They uh, annulled those uh, uh, local ordinances in Texas. Um, and uh, so, so they, they've been kind of going um, issue by issue, knocking down these local ordinances. But the big development here in, in just past few weeks is that um, in Texas and Florida, of course, uh, it's, <laughs> it's going to happen there. Um, the, they've passed much more sweeping uh, what are called preemption laws that say in Georgia or in Florida, for example, uh, if um, uh, that businesses can sue their local government if, <clears throat> if they um, pass any ordinances that um, the businesses are unreasonable. They, 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 unreasonable. Uh, in Texas, individuals can um, uh, sue over um, um, regulations having to do with um, uh, natural resources, agriculture, zoning, all, all of which have climate and environmental um, uh, implications. And, um, and, and individuals in this case can sue and in both of these cases, you know, they um, uh, may not win these suits, but they're, they're designed to have a, a chilling effect. And, and they're vaguely worded on purpose so that um, these localities will um, think it's not going to be worth it. You know, it's going to cost us a fortune and uh, legal fees uh, and so forth. And, and let me just um, jump in on that one. As you, yeah. as you just said, they're vaguely worded. Because that means you don't have you don't have to just worry about what actually is going it takes place in terms yeah. of the law and you know the response of the law. But if yeah. it's vaguely worded enough, boycott, discrimination, unreasonable, those sorts of things, yes, um, then you can keep people from even risking that response, similar mm -hmm. to what's going on in the states with some of their uh, anti-abortion rulings. <laughs> where a, a doctor might shy away from doing something, even though it it might not have led to the consequence he, he or she fears, but it might, and they're not willing to take that risk. Yes, you, you beat me to that analogy. I was sorry. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's another type of a bounty law, or, or these where the, um, the mother must be in uh, at risk of losing her life, but you know the, the risk isn't specified, and you don't know. So it's the, the same thing here. Um, and then the third way going down another stratum is the criminalization of dissent and, and protest um, by people in, in groups, and there are forty-five. States now that have passed these so-called, they're um, often called infrastructure laws because they, they say you can't even, you, you can't protest be in, within a certain physical distance of any um, energy infrastructure. Um, and they don't, um, yeah, they, they, uh, they, uh, I can guarantee you if you were protesting at a solar farm, they wouldn't uh, come come after you. Well, and but, even specifically, um, uh, I think as you point out in that article, Tennessee's law. Yeah. Uh, Tennessee passed a law forbidding local governments from taxing or regulating any of the state's energy infrastructure, but does not prohibit a local action that affects facilities for the transmission, distribution, collection, conversion, and use of solar energy. So you <laughs> can't you know, you can't go after fossil fuel, but <laughs> but but solar and, and, and wind is fair game. Go yeah. ahead. Um, but I think I think what you've done very, very well there is the three different levels. One, yeah. go against the companies, especially those pension plans, which are yeah. enormous uh, players in in our financial world. Yeah. Then the uh, state legislatures versus the rural state, rural dominated yeah. state legislatures versus the urban progressive uh, yeah. uh, laws. And then finally, you'd say, well, if that's happening, I guess protest is what we've got to do. Yeah. 
and then they make rules against <laughs> protests. Let me right. tell people yeah. that this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking today with Stan Cox of the Land Institute and John Pfeffer of the Institute for Policy Studies. Both are also journalists and authors, and we're talking broadly about the politics of climate and our relationship with the rest of nature. And you can learn more about Stan and his work at landinstitute.org and John at John Pfeffer, one word, John, F-E-F-F-E-R.com. Um, John, um, any observations, comments, anything about what, what we've laid out in this, this attack on the ability to actually take action um, effectively against uh, climate and fossil fuels? Well, first, it's you know a very um, a very good summary of of the problem. Um, I'd I'd also add that you know uh, which you know is implied in all of this that we're talking about red states against blue municipalities or concentrations of blue power within red states, but also it's red states against a blue federal government or a federal government that is perceived to be moving in right, a blue at least direction. Faintly blue. <laughs> Faintly blue, exactly. Robin's egg blue, maybe. Um, and uh, and so the, the, these red states really feel as if they are caught between, you know, more progressive local uh, cities and a more progressive federal structure. Um, it, it's uh, it it reveals, you know, some of the lie of states' rights. You know, this has been a kind of a elite motif in American politics for over 150 years, that states have the right to kind of um, go against federal policy if they believe that they have the right to do so. <laughs> and uh, and there is, of course, constitutional arguments about whether states have that or not. But it also, it goes to the point you made earlier about, you know, the, the minority uh, in the United States, whether we're talking about an economic minority, a minority of the wealthy, or a political minority. And it's a it's a strange byproduct, I would argue, of the, the, the fears of the founders. The founders were worried about a tyranny of the majority, and they set up various structures to militate against the tyranny of the majority by setting up for instance, the Senate, where you have you know uh, equal power held by very small states, uh, or the Electoral College, but in their kind of protections against the tyranny of the majority, I'm afraid that it has led to, in in some cases at least, the tyranny of the minority, and uh, minority, whether again we're talking about economic minorities or political minorities that have power far beyond what they should have in a democratic society. Um, the the last thing I would I would say, and to kind of bring this up to an international level, is uh, some of these preemption um, attempts, in other words, attempts to preempt progressives from uh, pushing through progressive legislation, uh, either on you know as Stan said, installing um, or getting rid of moving moving communities away from a reliance on oil, for instance, but it also extends to like even such a small thing as plastic bags and, and try, communities trying to get rid of plastic bags. And the state will say, no, actually, we don't think that's a good idea. But we see that interestingly at the international level with something called ISDS, which is investor state dispute settlements, which is a mechanism that's included into free trade agreements that allows corporations to sue governments for their policies that are maybe pro-climate or pro-environment. And again, vaguely worded, anything that might somehow affect the bottom line of corporations, corporations then have the right to say, hey, uh, this national government is, you know, is affecting our bottom line. We're going to take you to the court and we're going to try to get rid of or water down those environmental regulations. Um, so here again, we have this kind of principle where the minority, in this case, an economic minority, uh, subverts democratic process, subverts the policies of a democratically elected government through a free trade agreement, which is actually, when you think of it, kind of extraordinary. Well, let me let me let me ask because because the the acronyms you used, uh, I've come across, but I'm not I'm not that familiar with them. But I can remember in Seattle. In 1999, the fight was over the WTO and that very notion 
that that corporations could sue governments and and that uh you know at that point the progressives were worried about a loss of sovereignty <laughs> that that over the uh 25 years sort of since then that has sort of shifted as to who's worried about uh sovereignty but the the is there is that is the um the body that you mentioned within the WTO uh, an evolution from the WTO what is that well it's an evolution from the WTO cuz you know according to the 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 kind of worldview of the WTO they were supposed to be kind of negotiating multilateral trade agreements and so we had the Uruguay round many years ago but that actually fell apart um the ability of negotiators to overcome the differences and they are huge among all the member states of the WTO, meant that a kind of overall reduction of tariffs, which is what the WTO was all about, facilitation of greater free trade, was just not happening at a multilateral level, not happening at a global level. So what happened instead was either regional trade agreements, which have sometimes gone forward, sometimes not, and bilateral trade agreements. And the ISD ISDS mechanisms, investor state dispute settlement, is mostly within bilateral agreements. But I should also add that there has been so many protests against these ISDS provisions, similar to the protests you saw in Seattle back in 1999, that uh, they've either been removed or governments have, say, have said, well, we're not going to include them in future trade agreements. So this is a, a highly contested issue at this point. Um, and in many cases, people think, oh, God, trade agreements, they're so abstract, they're hard to read, they give me a headache just thinking about them. There's no way we can possibly have any impact on this elite discussion between lawyers and trade experts. But in fact, there can be influence. And the the, the victories on this ISDS issue testify to the, the impact that you know, civil society can have on this rather abstruse set of negotiations. And and let me ask. Uh, I, I thank you, John. But but if if this speaks more to you, Stan, feel free. Um, just in the last few days, I've been reading about. I think it's Merck suing the federal government against Medicare's right to negotiate drug prices. Seems like a very. I mean, you know, that's not climate, but that's progressive. Yeah. and it's it's certainly for the common good um uh do either either of you more up to speed on that than i am but that i'm i'm right that this is a similar kind of a uh an action yes i, I don't know about that uh specifically but i i think that a lot of stuff that doesn't look like it's related to climate in in this um anti-democratic drift is going to have a, a, a terrible um, impact, and especially the uh, attacks on uh, free speech uh, and freedom of the press, on um, education, uh, on libraries that um, drive to erase uh, history um, and and to um, uh, fund, uh, use public money. Uh, it's going to public schools to fund homeschooling. Uh, all, well, all of or, these... I, I believe it, one state just recently is now actually funding a, a Catholic school. Oh, yeah. That just came out in the yeah. last couple of days. Yeah. Which is a first, I, uh, or yeah. at least a first in hundreds of years. Yeah. And, and so uh, education systems and information systems that are not uh, that are, are intentionally uh, fostering uh, the erasure of history and that are trying to suppress critical thinking um, in, in the case of the, of the media, uh, really containing as much misinformation as information. Um, all of that stuff is uh, going to result in um, generations coming along that are not going to understand are, are, are going to be very easy to persuade that we don't need to do anything about climate and that fossil fuels are 
are good for us. So it's a it's a whole uh, social uh, control. Um, um, uh, right. System in other, in other that, words, that they're that trying. What 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 the media characterizes as social or cultural. Yeah. Um, but once you begin to quote, I mean, I'm I'm putting it in quotes because you know, dumb down. <laughs> uh, young people and education and so on, then you can sort of figure that the uh, the ability to to achieve civic literacy, the ability to have an informed citizenry, which uh, on which democracy depends, is going to be law uh, weakened and lost. And that will affect gun control in all those crises I mentioned at the top, gun control, inequality, democracy itself, climate. And and when I say our relationship with the rest of nature, I always uh, I will just tell you guys, it's a long, uh, bumpy phrase, but it's because I think environment doesn't really say it. It's sort of, in other words, what you've done with ecosphere versus, you know, I think really what it's about is our relationship with the rest of nature. Um, broader, and I'll go to you, John, and then then back to you, Stan. The 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 notions that I raised at the top. When you you this, I would imagine, um, keeps you up at night a little bit. Um, that that all the work you've done all your life to inform, and it, it may not matter because the strategy of minority control, whether it's uh, gerrymandering that gives states a the rural parts of states more power than the cities um whether it's uh the supreme court which we haven't even mentioned in this but the weakening that they recently did of the epa's ability to deal with uh uh water pollution um is enormous and 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 there may be more to come along that line and so on and and so, uh, John, for sort of how how you view this and, and if you see signs of hope in, 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 in what seems to be an onslaught uh, and just a building for a long time under the radar, if you will, with the Federalist Society and those sorts of things. But I think really for, for many Americans, I think probably Roe v. Wade suddenly went, what, you know? But this this ability of minority rule has just been growing and growing, and here we are. Well, first of all, I mean this is nothing new. I mean we have had this tyranny of the minority here in the United States for a long time, and one could argue that over the last two hundred plus years, this attempt to make a more perfect union has been about expanding franchise. You know, obviously bringing in more people. Uh, as voters um, and uh, and improving, you know, the the political infrastructure, if you will, in the United States, in the direction of democracy, and that everything we're th that we're seeing now, all the things that interrupt our sleep, make it difficult for us to feel yeah. good about the world. Uh, those are responses to our successes. Let's be honest. Um, we. Mm -hmm have been extraordinarily successful in getting climate change and environment onto the agenda when it wasn't on the agenda, you know? Uh, it's not like people were debating, uh, you know, the pollution prior to silent spring, uh, pesticides, obviously, uh, or any of the, the environmental agenda. Even the environmental agenda of the conservationists of the Teddy Roosevelt era was, was a pretty minoritarian approach to things because uh, they were often basically taking land away from Native Americans. But uh, our environmental agenda is now part of government practice, okay? It's part of the regulatory infrastructure. And so much of the what we're talking about here is an attack on regulations, either existing regulations or regulations that are coming down the line. But we are successful in getting those regulations in place. We have to do a better job of demonstrating that regulations are part of a democratic society. They are not some faceless bureaucrat who is exerting tyranny over you know, the, the live free or die Americans. It is an expression of majoritarian rule. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, 
Yes, internationally speaking, things don't look all that great. I mean, if we're talking about the various threats that you mentioned from pandemic to um, in economic inequality, et cetera, as well as the kind of rise of far right populist movements that have been very successful in uh, in gaining votes, et cetera, around the world, in Europe, in Brazil, in India. But I would like to believe that we are seeing the cresting of that far right populism, that it is in the process of exhausting itself because what happens is people voted into power. It demonstrates either its ineptitude, and in the case of Bolsonaro, it demonstrates its purely anti-democratic nature in the, in the case of Modi in India or Orban in, in, in Hungary, and that it, it will, because it is anti-democratic, be successful in the short term, but what gives me hope is the organizing of popular movements against these so-called populists and some new version of a kind of, I would say, green, progressive, democratic policy coming out of all of this. Something that is different from what progressive um, politics looked like in the past, you know, in which the only thing that mattered was growth. A rising ocean will lift all boats. Well, we've discovered that a rising ocean is not going to lift all boats. It's going to drown a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So this is a new kind of progressivism that's really yoked to a, uh, a climate-friendly, planet-friendly perspective. That gives me hope. Okay. Um, and mm. let me just, a couple of responses. One is, as you said, the, the what the, the, the negatives are in some sense a response to successes, progressive successes. And I, I often uh, look to 1970 as kind of the beginning of a certain trajectory. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon had uh, signed the EPA and OSHA and uh, Lewis Powell and others uh, decided that that was, uh, that we were going in the wrong direction the Powell memo comes out. Uh, Milton Friedman says that uh, shareholder value is the only uh, purpose of business. And this slow, relentless progress toward the situation we face today um, began then. I will say, by the way, I uh, recently interviewed Naomi Oreskes and uh, Eric Conway about their new book, The Big Myth, which says that this this didn't start in the 70s. It goes back at least to the turn of this century. And the point that they start the book with, if either of you, um, is that uh, why in the early 1900s, the National Association of Manufacturers was against child labor laws, just to show how crazy it was back then. And of course, by the time the book comes out, we are again <laughs> seeing the right uh, in uh, against child labor laws. Uh, so so just that. Stan, your bigger picture uh, view of all of this. But yeah, on, on these issues, it was about um, 18 months ago that uh, this whole thing um, um, really hit me. And, uh, and so I started reading what historians and political scientists were saying. And the um, uh, historian Thomas Zimmer had, um, had was writing about that time that um, not not that our our nation has reached a crossroads, but we've reached a T junction instead. That there's no going on like we're going. We're either going to turn toward finally for the first time becoming a multiracial pluralistic democracy, or it's going to go the other way. Way, the the, um, the mega way uh, and um, you know, head into uh, uh, authoritarianism or or worse and uh, fascism um, and and so I um, was you know, thinking about what are the consequences for um, uh, climate specifically um, and so I'm I've been sent for a little over a year now writing this uh, monthly piece for um, City Lights books. Um, 
at the, you know, citylights.com and look for the, the blog and my name. Um, following, uh, it's called In Real Time. Uh, it's following month by month the developments and in, in which way do we seem to be heading at the at the T-junction and, and and what and same time what's happening with uh, climate policy as a result and 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 trying to follow uh, the on the ground um, climate movement and, and individuals and organizations that are trying to navigate this not knowing um, whether in uh, see now it's a year into it I my uh, um, thesis was that we probably have the IPCC and I'll say you know we've the, what we do in the next 10 years is going to determine whether how we get out of this thing that it's either going to go one way or the other and my thesis was well the next two years it's now one year at this point uh what we do and, and that's just a period pulled out of a hat but um what we do in this period will determine whether we even have a chance to do what we need to do about climate in 10 years i hear you um, let me just say by the way that yeah. it isn't just zimmer who says that uh yeah. um if you remember the final uh words from um Steve Bannon, when he was interviewed by Charlie Rose, was there is a populist uprising coming. It's either going to be from the left or the right. And that's, huh. you know, that's that's where we stand. And, and I, it, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing he said has seemed bigger and truer than that. Um, you guys, uh, we got to bring this to a close, but I really appreciate it. I appreciate your work. And then I appreciate us wrestling with these from the very specific to, to the broader and more general uh, problems we face. Um, you can learn more about Stan Cox's work at landinstitute.org and John Pfeffer's work at johnpfeffer.com. And I'll allow you, Stan, one more time to say that blog that seems to be a good place to get. <laughs> it's citylights.org. Um, uh, dot yeah. com and then just look for the blogs and look for your blog in real time yes unfortunately mine are not grouped together they're interspersed with other posts okay. but uh, just keep scrolling and uh, <laughs> <laughs> just keep scrolling um okay for this conversation many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work go to terrencemcnally.net t-e-r-r-e-n-c-e M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, dot net, or a world that just might work dot com. They're the same website. If you want to get an email announcement uh, each week telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually links to about 10 articles, 10 or, I've got it up now where it's sort of 10 or 15 articles a week to sort of flesh out the whole conversation, you can uh, email me at t. E. McNally, T E M C N A L L Y, um, T E McNally at post, no, that's too hard, at mac.com, M A C.com, or you can sign up at my website. Um, you can uh, also sign up for the podcast at most of those podcast sites Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. You'll find years of podcasts at those sites or at my site. Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer, etc. You can follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Um, thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, John Pfeffer and Stan Cox. Keep up your good work. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to and the industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. I turned up the radio. I can't hear it. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. So you had better do what you were told. 
listen to the radio. But times have changed. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio. It's the 21st century, and at Progressive Voices, we're reclaiming so you know, our time. Progressive Voices, now powered by TuneIn, speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network.